Welcome to The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. My name is Alex Webster. I'm a communications assistant at the Center for Constitutional Rights, and I am so grateful and so excited to be here in discussion with Zahara Green and Robert Salim Holbrook. As a quick bit of introductions, uh, Zahara started their advocacy for transgender rights while incarcerated and has been an advocate in the transgender community for over 10 years. The co-founder and executive director of Transcending Barriers, Zahara also acts as board president of Black and Pink and works with the National PREA Resource Center to End Sexual Abuse and Confinement. Zahara spends most of their time working toward the liberation of their people. We're also here with Salim, who is executive director of the Abolitionist Law Center. He is a co-founder of the Human Rights Coalition, an organization composed of family members of prisoners that advocates on behalf of prisoners' civil and human rights, and sits on the advisory board of the Amistad Law Project and Youth Arts and Empowerment Project. I'm so, so excited to be here in conversation with you all. This conversation is centered around Black August, which is very much rooted in the Black radical tradition. And so this month, the Center for Constitutional Rights, we are in that tradition, commemorating this moment to, and taking this moment to acknowledge the historic freedom struggles that have occurred in August and honor the political prisoners and freedom fighters for Black liberation whose lives have been claimed or those who are still with us. Some background on and Black August for some of our listeners who might be hearing this for the first time. This commemoration is something that began in the 1970s following the murders of Black radicals and political thinkers George Jackson and Katari Golden while they were behind bars at the San Quentin State Prison. And it is a commemoration that continues to this day to highlight the stories and the thinkers and the radical movers who are part of the Black resistance tradition. So Jackson's death, the incidents that also inspired the Attica uprising in September of 1971 in upstate New York, which is perhaps one of the most well-known uh, prisoner-led rebellions in the history of the United States, and continues to, through his work, Blood in My Eye and the Little Dad Letters, continues to inspire radicals to this day. So as we know, you know, August is a hot month. It is a month that is hot with political activity. It's hot and, and, and a climate that really, in my personal opinion, connects me to the climates of my ancestors. And it holds significance uh, across a, a number of dates and across a number of historical events. And I think that, Celine, maybe you can give us a little bit more information about this, but I'm going to mention a couple uh, that happened on August 28th. So August 28th is the day in which the United Kingdom abolished slavery in 1833, really establishing one of the first moments of uh, pressure from the international community that would lead to the toppling of the, the institution of slavery in the United States. It is also the day in which uh, Emmett Till's life was claimed and was a, really a flashpoint for Black radical movements and civil rights movement of the 50s and the 60s. That took place on the 28th. It was a day in which Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech on Washington. It was also the day that Hurricane Katrina made landfall in Louisiana, which for me is, one of, is a moment in history that has gone on to really expose the disparate treatment of Black folks at the hands of the state and the, the ways in which our citizenship is always called into question and our, our value in this country has never been protected. So getting into the conversation, I really want to jump straight into this and, and acknowledge that this is a moment where we're seeing a lot of critical accelerations. We're seeing this being described by many as an inflection point in our history and our racial reckoning uh, and a moment in which the black radical thought, the black radical tradition is giving, is being given mainstream treatment. It's in many ways making folks who would not have been aware of the literature that has come before us, the, the black radical thinkers who have really pushed us into this moment and allowing us to consume and take time to really think through those conversations. But um, I really wonder, for the two of you and anybody who would like to go first, 
before we get into the conversation about what's happening today, can you describe to me, like, what does Black August mean to you? How is it observed and how is it informing your work? Black August is um, very important to me. Um, Black August to me is the resistance of, of, of my ancestors understanding what has happened for me, understanding who I can look on to, the shoulders that I stand on while I do this work with the resistance against the violence that comes from the state, that comes from the people who are in power. So it is, it's an inspiration to me and it guides me and inspires the work that I do every day. Yeah, for me, Black August, you know, I kind of like to view myself as a embodiment or an example of Black August as someone who served 27 years in prison. I had the fortune uh, to run into political prisoners in Pennsylvania State Prison, like Russell Maroon Schultz and Joseph Jojo Bowens, Fred Muhammad Burton, former members of the Black Panther Party and Black Liberation Army from Philadelphia. And as a juvenile going into the state prison system, these men were instrumental in not only transforming my life and my thinking, but transforming the lives and thinkings of, of so many other young men and, and children who came through Pennsylvania's prison system. And so who I am today was formed by the politics of Black August. When I was 18 years old in solitary confinement at Greater First State Prison, the moment I read Soledad Brother by George Jackson, you know, that completely changed my life. I felt as though in that solitary cell, I was having a conversation with George Jackson. So for me, you know, Black August is deeply personal. It's something that during my period of incarceration, I looked to, I observed. I, I do like to place it in the context that Black August is not a celebration. It's an observance. It's a moment where we respect fallen freedom fighters. And I emphasize fallen freedom fighters. We certainly emphasize and uplift the victories. But Black August is a reminder of not just Black resistance, but also state violence that is exercised against those of us who are fighting for not only Black independence and Black self-determination, but for equal standing in this society. And a lot of the martyrs during Black August, George Jackson, Jonathan Jackson, Hugo Pinnell, you know, they were, they were murdered by either the state or agents of the state. So, and we're not just talking about people who were murdered during August. We're talking also about Fred Hampton. We're talking about, you know, Mike Brown, you know, and Ferguson. You know, this is a month for us to observe their sacrifices, but specifically those who have fought for our freedom. Absolutely. And I really appreciate that you center this conversation and this being an observance and not a celebration. I think that what we're seeing happening right now is a type of co-opting of Black August in which it's trying to be painted as a celebration of our fallen ancestors. But at, at the same time, there's something very troubling that needs to be discussed about taking such a solemn recognition of, of state violence, a solemn remembrance of martyrs who were taken from us by the state specifically for demanding human rights and specifically for 
demanding that political prisoners have that their that their lives are not stolen violently and with impunity. And so we're seeing a shift around as as awareness of Black August is, is coming to the forefront of a sort of redefinition in the same way that we've seen a redefinition of, of defund the police in the same way that we've seen a redefinition of abolish the police movement. We're talking about the historical context, but I also want to know in this day and in this moment, at this particular juncture of racial reckoning, this particular juncture of, of COVID, how is it that you all are, are doing the work that is, is observing Black August? I recognize that, you know, this is a tradition that you carry with you and it's really foundational to either the way that you do movement work or the way that you even philosophize about what this country should look like. But how is it sort of in your, in your, um, in the material, uh, how is it that you observe Black August and how can others do the same? So one of the ways that we're observing Black August right now, personally, myself, is right now one of the cases that we're working on, actually several of the cases we're working on at this moment are dealing with political prisoners in Pennsylvania. You know, late last night and early this morning, I was working on a press release for Fred Muhammad Burton, who has been in prison for 50 years after being falsely accused, convicted, and sentenced to life without parole for his alleged involvement in a police shooting in 1970. This was during the era of Frank Rizzo, who was a racist police commissioner and mayor of Philadelphia, who was notorious for his reputation. You know, he sicked the Philadelphia Police Department on young black students who were demonstrating for black history classes in Philadelphia schools. At every moment when black Philadelphians took to the streets in the 1960s and early 70s, the response of Frank Rizzo and his police was violence. And there were some in our communities that answered that violence, whether it was through protesting in the street, and there were also some who answered that violence through armed confrontations with the police. Fred Muhammad Burton was one of those who answered that through protests and demonstrations in the street. However, because of that, he was targeted and falsely convicted of this homicide. So right now, his court date is August 17th, and we're working on a press release for that, we're working on another case of Russell Maroon Schultz, who has been in prison again for 50 years for the same case. He's in stage four cancer, fighting for his life. We're also working to build a Jericho chapter in Philadelphia. And I think it's really important for people who want to get involved with Black August and supporting political prisoners, they get involved with the National Jericho Movement to free political prisoners. You could just Google it online um, and you could get in touch with them and they do campaigns and actions to raise awareness to our political prisoners because listen, these political prisoners that I named and many of them across the country, but specifically the ones in Pennsylvania, they answered the same call that tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and even millions of people have answered it in this moment that police must be held accountable, that police terror and police must, brutality must be stopped. They answered this call for their generation 50 years ago. Many of them are still in prison to this day for answering that call. So we have to center them in this movement and make sure that we keep their experiences and voices out front. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love this dialogue that you're inviting everyone into to really be in conversation with and I think this is very much central to 
the tradition of, of Black August is being in conversation with our ancestors, those who are with us and those who have, have been claimed by state violence, but inviting us to not only uplift our own struggles here during Black August, but also to recognize the people who are still behind bars, the people who are still suffering for unsubstantiated claims, still suffering for their political activism, still suffering for their own engagement in the same ways that we are, are being engaged in and being activated politically. Zahara, I want to bring you into, into this conversation and ask a very similar question about how Black August is really manifesting in your work today and maybe comparing that to a previous year and seeing how um, maybe that work has changed or how it's, it looks a little bit different in, in this political climate. Yeah, I would say when we started the Transcending Barriers in 2017, we centered our focus with trans women of color, understanding that trans women of color were being overly victimized by violence and the nation. And that was one of our focus in the beginning. Since those years have gone on, we have seen that us being an organization that's in the South, understanding the intersection of us being Black and trans has been a huge factor in a lot of the things that exist with us having to having to be in the underground economy, having to engage in survival crime. And so our work is now centered around Black and trans, and, and it's really around community building. What are we doing to build a community, especially during COVID? We're organizing with formerly incarcerated Black trans people throughout the state. And even through COVID, we're using technology to continue that organizing and continue to that resistance, especially during this time now with COVID-19. Wow, incredible. So relating a little bit back to some of the work that the Center for Constitutional Rights is doing right now, we're uh, currently representing and one of my colleagues, an incredible Black queer woman, Janiere Aziz, is really spearheading in this work within the Center for Constitutional Rights, representing Ashley Diamond, who you were incarcerated together with and have many parallel experiences with. Could you share a little bit about sort of on, on top of the work that you're already describing, what type of changes that you're demanding in Georgia and across the South and what kind of things that you experienced that informed how you go about this work? Ashley and myself, we were both incarcerated in the Georgia Department of Correction, the Georgia State Prison. We both filed cases against the prison challenging the conditions of our confinement. And the Georgia Department of Correction has a long history of failing to protect those who are vulnerable that are in their prisons and also failing to provide the gender necessary care for trans people who are incarcerated. And a lot of trans people who are incarcerated are having to deal with the gender dysphoria because of the lack of the prisons um, doing anything, prison administrators doing anything to address these issues. So this is something that has been going on and continues to go on. And a lot of these, we have been seeking some remedies from the court. Beautiful. Salim, if, if I could sort of invite you to take part in, in this conversation as well, uh, specifically around the ways that gender and gendered violence manifest in the prison industrial complex and how we're organizing, not just expecting, I think that maybe for me, what, what I'm thinking of is that like Black trans folks, we're always doing the work of making sure that our, our siblings are protected. How are the larger movements, including Black trans voices, centering the political thought and the political power that Black trans folks are really leaning into? And what does that work look like in a coalitional space or within an intersectional lens? I think this is the area where the movement has really lagged behind. And, and that's definitely troubling. Yeah. It's self-reflection and self-criticism. In terms of prison, prisons is, is a hyper-masculated environment 
and my experience in prison is that queer and trans folks, especially in prisons, face not only tremendous ostracism, oppression, discrimination from guards, but also from prisoners alike. And in my role right now, one of the things I do is when I come out and I'm in movement spaces and we're talking about solitary confinement or abuse within prisons, I've made it my goal to be very intentional and perhaps I could do better, you know, just again, self-reflection, but I do, when I talk about solitary confinement within prison, when I talk about state violence, I do share stories of how trans and queer folks on the inside bear the brunt of it, right? Because, because of one, they're ostr being ostracized by both prisoners and guards, they're vulnerable. And prison is not a place where you want to be vulnerable. And not only from that, but also just from a policy standpoint, how the prison treats trans folks differently. Like a lot of trans prisoners are just automatically placed in solitary confinement for because of their gender, right? You know, Pennsylvania does that. Many states around the country does that. So here you have someone who is asserting their identity and already being oppressed because of their identity, being further oppressed by being placed in solitary confinement because of that. So I try and talk about these issues and spaces and make it clear that, listen, one is that it's not right. Two, this is something that we have to organize around outside. But this is an issue that's connected to the entire society. I tell people that, you know, and this is where that intersectionality comes in at. This is a societal issue. This is an issue within the black community that we're, we're having some deep internal struggles around. And we're going to have to keep having these conversations and keep having these struggles until trans folks, black trans folks, lives matter just as well as the next life in the black community, you know? So um, I'm not gonna cut any corners here that as someone who's been involved in black movement spaces and spaces that centered around self-determination and black resistance, this is definitely an issue that we're still lagging behind, but society is lagging behind. And, and, we, and there are people in these spaces who are, are now stepping up to the plate on this issue. And also too, something for me personally that really helped shape my perspective on gender politics, and also even took me out of that super masculine prison mentality was reading about Kwesi Balagoon, legendary member of the Black Liberation Army, his feats with confrontations with the state are legendary. I would encourage anyone who wants to, you know, read a modern day Robin Hood to read his story. He meant force with force. He, he was committed to not just Black liberation, but helping humanity his famous words in the court when he was sentenced to life plus 45 years was, Your Honor, I'm not worried about that. I'm not in the habit of completing prison sentences because he had escaped twice from prison. He was queer. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of pushback within the movement to identifying Kwesi Balagoon as queer, right? 
he was a member of the Black Liberation Army. He was what it was to be a man, you know? And I can remember reading about it and struggling in my cell, like, how am I going to pass this around to other prisoners and, and, and you know, share his story? Like, they're not going to read this. Then they're going to question my sexuality. And I remember, I mean, there were some brothers that would, like, try and take that page out of the pamphlet and pass it around. But then, you know, we just had to be like, yo, we got to own this. Like, he was queer. There's nothing wrong with that. Did that take away from anything? Did that take away from his commitment to black liberation? Right? Did, you know, would you, you know, call Quasi Balagoon a, a homophobic slur to his face? Absolutely not. You wouldn't, right? So for me, from a personal level, you know, reading his story really helped me as someone who was caught up in that prison culture come out of it. And that's something that I try and share. So I would encourage people who are listening to this to read about Kwesi Balagoon, Akinyela, Emoja, the professor from Georgia State, put together a very great godly article about him. For me, those have been some examples of just how I've tried to be a better advocate on this issue. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I'm, um, you know, as I'm hearing a lot of the discussions that, that we're having around um, centering and and acknowledging the contributions of Black queer and trans folks to to the movements, it really does remind me of, of the the distance that we still have to cover. My Black radical thinkers, like they're all queer and trans, and I'm thinking like how very much that is a product of of the spaces that I've not felt comfortable going into, and, and spaces that I've not been able to uh, to be a part of. And so I've been in spaces where those are are bread and butter that our Black feminist um, radical thinkers are all queer and trans. Um, so I think maybe if we could go back really quickly to um, Zahara, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about not just um, your experience with the prison industrial complex, but specifically about like, we, we touched on it briefly, um, what, what you're looking for now in the cases that you and, and Ashley Diamond are uh, bringing against the Georgia uh, Department of Corrections. But I, I think more more broadly about your work now, like are what are some of the demands that you and, and your comrades down in, in Georgia and in the South are are really pushing amid COVID, amid racial reckonings, amid Black uprisings? What are some of the ways that you all are organizing? What are some of the conversations that you're having? If you could let us be a fly on the wall, on the wall to that really briefly. Yes. Um, so well, some of our organizing work, which we have been working on for quite some time, is decriminalizing sex work in the city of Atlanta, recognizing that this is something that a lot of Black trans women are being arrested for in this city and having to spend time in jail and prison for. And understanding how we are going about defunding the police in a way of looking at the executive branch and the local government and also the state government as well. How can you reduce your budget around law enforcement with defunding the police? Because trans people are oftentimes been at the violence that exists within the state and carceral system overall in the prison industrial complex. So looking at that, so that's some of the work that we're working on right now as far as our abolition work. But we continue to support TGNC people um, when they're released from incarceration, and we're continuing to do that work as well. What does that work look like on the day-to-day? Like when you are supporting somebody who is 
say, uh, you know, a black TGNC person who is coming out of the system and, and, you know, bringing all of that baggage and, and bringing all of that experience and, and trying to, you know, get their life back together. What does it look like to be supporting somebody through that process? And also, if you just sort of really like relate that maybe to how that's changed um, through COVID and through the the heightened attention that, you know, the heightened trans visibility, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. The heightened visibility of trans folks and heightened visibility of like these racial conversations that are happening right now. For us, the program is generally about navigating back into society. Um, a lot of trans people are dealing with economic insecurity in our society. And a lot of the issues comes with helping with housing. Housing is a big issue, especially when individuals have been released. They have families who have ostracized them or rejected them, and they can't go back home to their family. And a lot of times that's one of the main things that individuals are needing once they are released from incarceration. We support and always around job readiness. We help build resumes. We help look for jobs online. So we're still doing that work even through COVID. We're also taking care of all the protective measures to protect ourselves and our staff. And um, so, but we're still doing the work um, supporting individuals who are coming out of incarceration. A lot of things that's happened now since COVID is the jails and prisons are taking longer to release people from the places. And we're just trying to find ways of how we can get people released because they're being held in there even past their release date. Hmm. Yeah, in my own in my own work, I can also attest to the way that you know the prisons here. Uh, we I used to live in a neighborhood and did a lot of organizing around. And sorry, I continue to do a lot of organizing around this, but used to be much closer to this work around a federal prison called MDC in New York, and they were holding people in essentially like twenty two hours, twenty three hours a day without any access to showers, one, like maybe once a week. And so the conditions that they were experiencing, they were describing that like transfers had been halted, like people were not getting good time and really being like subjected to what I, I believe <laughs> corrections of officials would consider to be like, how would I describe this? What they would consider to be like really <laughs> ideal on the side of the state where people are locked up in their cells, not talking really quiet, like, being put into solitary confinement for asking to take a shower or not being able to make contact with lawyers and loved ones, but which are, you know, extremely oppressive conditions to live under. So yeah, under COVID and under, you know, as people are becoming more aware of the violence of the state and the violence of the prison industrial complex, we're seeing that they're reacting to these in ways that actually give them more power and make the conditions within prisons extremely, extremely oppressive to live under and extremely inhumane. I think that one more thing that I'd like to talk about within your own view of what the legacy of Black August means and the legacy of, of work that you're doing, how would you describe the contribution that you're making to that Black August legacy? And I think that maybe going back to what our listeners can do and what other folks can do to be a part of a legacy of Black resistance, to be a part of a legacy of Black radical thought, what can they do to be not only involved in your work, but maybe be involved in work work that is more close to home for them? You know, for us at the Abolitionist Law Center, I mean, we are committed to political prisoners, releasing political prisoners. That is what Black August was started by, political prisoners, people on the inside of prison. And for us, our contribution to Black August is 
bringing home political prisoners in the United States who have been in prison for close to 50 years. Just think about how long they've been in prison because of their politics, because of the movements they represented. And that's something that we're committed to doing, whether it's through litigation, as we're doing with Arthur Chetaway Johnson, Russell Maroon Schultz, Fred Muhammad Burton, um, Jojo Joseph Bowens. You know, for us, we are committed to bringing their, them home. When we at Abu Jamal, we're committed to either representing these political prisoners or enhancing whatever representation they have by being involved in their legal teams or helping to organize around their cases. So for us, that's our contribution. We want to bring home the living embodiments and examples of Black August, which are political prisoners on the inside. So people who are interested in supporting us can you know, support us in their effort by visiting our social media pages. Um, one of the areas that we could also use help with is this is on fundraising, if people want to donate to this, because listen, let's be straight, there are no grants for political prisoners. You know, this, all of the work that we're putting on, putting in for political prisoners are coming from our own coffers. We're not getting any foundation money for this. We're not getting any grants for this. So for us, um, if you would like to help us contribute to Black Office and put this fight in to bring our political prisoners home, it would be very helpful if you could donate um, to the Abolitionist Law Center because we use that money to actually bring home political prisoners who are forgotten about in this home. Yes, yeah, it's so important that you mention there's no real appetite in the mainstream to support people who have been incarcerated for their political activity and the real material difficulties of advocating for and you know litigating on, on behalf of folks who have been locked up and who's, who have an entire propaganda machine that is like working against them to prevent them from seeing the light of day and, and being brought back to their families. So it's, it's really devastating to hear that. But hopefully our listeners, if you're interested in, in supporting their work, you can do so uh, in the ways that Salim has mentioned. And Zahara, if you could answer the same question, how would you sort of describe your contribution to the legacy of Black August and how can our listeners and other folks who want to be involved in the type of work that you're doing, how can they become more activated? What can they do? What can they read? Yeah, um, I think of the work that we do overall of prison abolition, addressing the root cause of the issue with the state balance, understanding that white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy is a huge factors into what is going on with all of the mass incarceration in our society, how, why are people are being targeted. So, so thinking of it from that and continue to do the work towards prison abolition. Um, so that's something that's very important and rooted in the work that we're doing. And just thinking of ways people can get involved and can, can affect this work and to move the work is one of the things that has been talked about right now is defunding the police. Um, having the local government defund the law enforcers of our society in a way that completely changes how we see enforcing laws in our society, how we see how we see our court systems and, and prosecuting these laws, um, the way that we're doing it, are we going to continue to 
live in a society that uses justice through retribution or we're going to move into some restorative justice and transformative justice and changing the way that we police in this in our society it's just, it's just a movement to uh, having the justice system evolve because of what's what we have currently is affecting families especially black families especially black people and it's something that has to change yeah thank you so much for me black august is something that i observe by reading and you've all mentioned already some some texts that have really are, are seminal pieces and, and foundational pieces that everyone should be reading. I, I think that, Salim, you mentioned the Soledad Brothers. You've mentioned a couple of works already, but is there anything, and specifically within within the intersections that you work in, that people should be more aware of, what they could read, to really have this meditation on Black radical thought throughout this month? Uh, yes, certainly. One thing I would encourage people to do is visit the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement website, they have a lot of great material about Black August. A friend of mine, Dan Berger, wrote a very great book called Captive Nation that has a very good chapter in it about the origins of Black August. I would also encourage people to look at the San Francisco Bay View online. They have an index that has a historical record of Black August going back to the 1970s. Beautiful. Yeah, I want to <laughs> echo the San Francisco Bayview. Fantastic, fantastic resource. And Zahara, how about you? Is there anything that you're reading that you recommend folks really ingest in this moment? I'm right now reading about melanin. So that's been a great book that I'm reading. Well, fantastic. Thank you all so much for joining me for this conversation. I really feel that it's it's been so generative. It's been really given me a lot to, to dig into. Um, so I'm so excited to like as soon as this call ends, like hit up my local bookstores and, and, and find some readings, but also um, to see how I can become more involved in some of the projects that you all have mentioned. I just want to say thank you to both of you so much for your time, for your incredible wealth of knowledge. And of course, as always, the, for the work that you're doing and the incredible transformative ways that you are rocking and shaping these conversations. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.